Welcome back to I Cry at Work. I'm your host, Carrie Ann Cashon, a burned-out millennial. If you're new here, this is a weekly podcast about corporate America and the great resignation. And this is episode eight. Come a long ways. We've had eight weeks of corporate buzzwords, starting with the first, which was entitled Going Above and Beyond, where I explained how logical it is that people are no longer killing themselves at work because they realize it doesn't do anything for them. It's not helping them, like pay enough to cover inflation. And in only eight short weeks between that episode and this one, just two months, corporate America has managed to come up with a new buzzword to replace going above and beyond. That is the fastest I've seen anything get approved in a corporate setting. Record time. This new buzzword to describe going above and beyond. Giving 110%. But this one is way more on brand. Because the new buzzword puts all the blame and burden on the employee so the business will benefit. So on brand. Trying to make them feel guilty for following basic logic and reason. And let me tell you, they... They really outdid themselves with this one. They really did. They they really did go above and beyond their typical level of stupidity. Quiet quitting. That's the word. That's their new word, in case you haven't heard. When I first saw it, I assumed it was basically the opposite of rage quitting, <laughs> which was a trending phrase at some point during the past year used to explain when people absolutely lose their shit and abruptly resign in fury. I liked that term. So I assumed quiet quitting was going to describe people that just secretly see themselves out in a very pleasant and soft way and that HR stops announcing it because of how many people are leaving and they don't want to give the existing employees any ideas. Something like that. But that would make too much sense. So instead, someone, somewhere, decided to come up with the term quiet quitting to describe someone doing the job they're paid to do. If this is confusing to you, welcome to the club. That when a logical human being realizes that they no longer want to kill themselves for their employer by doing significantly more than what is required and expected is somehow quitting. And I'm offended as someone who actually quit their job. A real quitter. That my hard-earned title is being used so carelessly to describe this group These people have the nerve to show up to work every day. They put in 40 hours. They meet the expectations of their employer. They perform all of their job responsibilities every goddamn day. It's insulting to those of us that actually quit. Just think how the rage quitters feel. What a slap in the face. 
But seriously, that is the term being used to describe people that over time realize going above and beyond generally doesn't actually help you as much as it does your employer. That working on weekends and taking on increased responsibilities without additional pay just to prove yourself doesn't actually lead to an outcome that makes it worth the sacrifice. Over time, you realize that ROI isn't positive. That that additional stress on you, on your relationships, with your kids, with your spouse, on the time you lost with family and friends that you'll never get back, just isn't worth it. So instead of doing significantly more than what's expected of you when it comes to work, you'll just start doing what is expected of you. After all, you'll get paid the same. At least that's what your instincts have told you over time because of behaviors you've seen from employers. And you know what's funny about this term, aside from all of it, is how many times older generations have told younger generations this piece of advice. Work to live, don't live to work. Sounds like a dream, doesn't it? Well, I have good news for these older generations. We actually took that advice. Congrats. And we're putting it into practice. And do we get a reward for taking the advice of our wiser, more successful, and unequivocally superior elders? Will this finally put an end to them constantly telling us we're lazy and failures? Of course not. No, our reward for taking their advice is being called quitters. But you know, it's better than that time they all told us we had to go to college to secure a spot in middle class. <laughs> yeah, that reward was $1.6 trillion of debt. They really got us with that one. But I am not okay with this one. It's giving all of us great resigners a bad name. You can't have people that continue to work and do their job effectively running around there with this label. Do you think the person that came up with this term actually knows the definition of quit? Or do you think they just had like a magic eight ball of terms used to coerce people into working for free? We were just one shake away from being quiet resume builders. In case they needed a refresher, the definition of quit pulled straight from Google itself. To leave a place, usually permanently. I don't like the lees lees, but it does the trick. In case that incredibly clear definition is too much for them to wrap their head around, the antonym of the verb to leave is to stay. Oh, I see we have a question from the C-suite. Uh, no, sir, you're thinking of synonym. Antonym is the opposite. Yeah, you're real close, though. So can someone please explain to me how people that stay working, that stay there, it's what they're doing, they're staying Performing the job they're paid to do is quitting? 
What the fuck are you leaving? The need for marriage counseling and a Xanax prescription? I really think this might be the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> See, kids, this is why you follow each step of the 17-year approval process outlined in your company handbook. Everyone should have a copy of the company handbook and a three-ring binder placed in your cubicle. If not, there is a copy available for reference next to the fax machine. I really can't articulate how dumb this term, quiet quitting, really is. What bothers me the most about it is it, once again, completely ignores the role employers play in the workplace and just puts judgment on the employee. Have they ever stopped to think, why are people deciding they don't want to kill themselves taking on more work than what's asked of them? Because from there, you can pretty easily follow down the path to see it's just a logical response to behaviors they've seen in the workplace. That's how humans learn. Just very basic human instinct. Just like algorithms, there are inputs that lead to outputs. Now that's the way I could probably get their attention about this. Just put AI somewhere on a slide. Certainly wouldn't be the first time I've done it. I would go as far as to say that I would call that my power move. My PowerPoint move, that is. See, before my career pivot to professional shit talker, my profession and expertise was in e-commerce. And that's what I did for companies, is lead their e-commerce business and strategy, generally focusing on Amazon. And it really was a great career for me because I've always loved sales and selling has always really excited me. But I've also always been really drawn to web and tech. <laughs> I generally would not use the term web, but I did here because I feel like it has some nostalgia in it. The word web just takes us back a little bit to the glory days. How would you choose to rank your friends this week? Was your crush going to log in to MSN Messenger or AOL? Whatever your preference. Who is Tom from MySpace? I wonder what Tom's up to nowadays. I, I hope he's doing well. I really do. Still wearing that plain white t-shirt. But those were the days I started realizing how much I liked tech and just started learning. And it was pretty early on. I was fairly young. Because I remember coding in HTML before I had a MySpace. Before MySpace, like, took off. Instead, I was HTML coding different styles for Exanga sites. I don't know if a lot of people had exposure to Exanga or if it was just like, big in my community. But it was basically a MySpace before MySpace. Much more bare bones. And that's where I learned how to code HTML. So getting into e-commerce as an adult was a perfect fit for me. I was and am still very passionate about it. I was very fortunate to love what I was doing. But leading e-commerce efforts in big companies definitely came with baggage, which was educating everyone. Because it's still 
somewhat of a new concept for a lot of these companies. The number of analogies I had to use over the years to describe how Amazon's algorithm works is nauseating. Really for any type of algorithm, really any analogy to try to describe how algorithms work. Trying to explain machine learning to people that had a child before they had a cell phone was difficult to say the least. Even just the term machine learning was too much. I learned that quickly. Generally, I cringe at people using the term AI. But I learned how to use it to my advantage. Because I knew all these executives heard the term AI all the time. They had no clue what it meant. They just knew it was important for them to have. So I would just stick those two letters on my slide and it would cut my time in half easily. But you know what's ironic? I went from trying to explain how machines learn to humans to trying to explain how humans learn to, I don't know, machines? Or at least humans that are running these companies trying to be machines that don't understand why quiet quitting is 100% logical. Tables have turned, I would say. So let me break it down. The one thing humans and machines do have in common is having inputs and outputs. We both ingest information over time, which are the inputs, in order to produce our result, the output. That is how both algorithms and humans demonstrate our intelligence. If you forgot, AI stands for artificial intelligence. But here's the big difference. Machines don't have feelings. <laughs> they would not be a guest on this podcast. They don't experience emotion. Humans, on the other hand, are emotional beings. Which here at I Cry at Work, we celebrate. We experience joy and pain. All the things. And although we're constantly told to remove our feelings and emotion in any intellectual activity, when it comes to learning, it actually helps us a lot. Specifically, it helps us recognize patterns, helping us learn faster. Where we beat the robots. We learn faster. It only takes one, two times max during Red Rover, Red Rover for us to learn that we don't want to send Connor Freeman built like a linebacker and held back two grades, right over. Machines don't know what that fear and pain to your forearm is like. No, they just have to send Connor right over 150 times in order to begin thinking that may not be your best pick. We've all seen a Roomba run directly into a wall, back up and do it again, and again, and again. If you saw a human doing that, you would call 911. It only takes one full-speed walk into the wall for us to realize we shouldn't do that again. That's the big difference in how we learn patterns. Humans learn because we have emotions and we feel things, including joy and pain. Machines learn because they have a perfect memory. Which we obviously don't have. 
But just because we can't remember all the inputs doesn't mean we won't still exhibit the output, our behavior. Here's a perfect example of that. Try to think of a specific moment you had as a child where your parent said something to you directly, beginning with the word, why? Whether you remember anything or not, even if you just make an assumption of what that sentence could have been, if I were to guess, the majority of the stories or assumptions are probably in line with, why did you do that? In fact, if you listen to last week's episode, that's precisely what my teacher asked the kid that hit me in the head with the candle snuffer in preschool. But whether we remember those events or not, to this day, most people immediately get defensive when asked a question that starts with why. Asking a question that starts with why triggers defensiveness universally. I'm not making that up. I learned that from Chris Voss, the former lead hostage negotiator for the FBI, in case you couldn't come up with a more badass job. I learned it in his masterclass on negotiation, which I took at some point during my time in corporate to get better at my job. Granted, I took that masterclass on my own personal time, but you get the point. Because in addition to teaching executives how Amazon's algorithm worked, I also had to deal with Amazon directly and negotiate deals with Amazon, the company. As you can imagine, negotiating with Amazon is truly a joyous occasion. One could say delightful dealing with people living in a city where it perpetually rains. Working for a corporation so powerful that it has single-handedly carried the word antitrust through the 21st century. So I saw this guy as a hostage negotiator, and I was like, yeah, makes sense. And that's where I learned that when negotiating, you should avoid starting a question with why. Because it triggers defensiveness, and it hurts rapport. They won't tell you very much. Instead, you should use what and how, which I would always write on my paper before going in to negotiate with Amazon. People love to be asked what to do. They love to be asked how to do it. Why, on the other hand, makes you feel accused. Because we learned that pattern early as a child, and we react accordingly in a justified way. That when someone says, why, we need to prepare ourselves to justify our behavior verbally. That's how humans learn. That's how we develop intelligence. Not running into the wall 500 times. Which is why this new term, quiet quitting, is so comical. And not just because it's funny to say with two cues. If so many people are starting to exhibit a certain behavior, enough people to warrant giving this club a name, we're just automatically going to assume it's because they're all flawed humans. That obviously, each and every one in this group is lazy. It's just who they are. That can't possibly be the result of sound humans. 
working in a flawed system. The fact that quiet quitting, so to say, is even a term shows that's how they think about it. They would rather just brand the people exhibiting this behavior as flawed, as quitters, losers, really, than even entertain the thought that the system they're working in is the one with the flaws. You know, the same system that's getting more work out of people for free. All the people quiet quitting, aka doing their job, have just identified a pattern with work and they're adjusting accordingly. Because they're a lot more intelligent than all the dumb fucks running around using a word to describe its direct antonym. Like it's backwards day at elementary school. No one's quitting. These people are staying. They're just staying and choosing not to extend themselves far beyond their responsibilities anymore. Not because they're lazy, not because they're slackers, just because they learned over time that when you exert all that extra effort, it results in pain, not joy. It's called logic. The people that came up with this new term should try showing some every once in a while. I know a lot of people that over time have realized this issue with going above and beyond and giving 110%. But I recently saw someone post their story about this that I think articulates it perfectly. This guy that posted had been working in Silicon Valley for over 10 years as a software engineer, writing code, working for startups. And here is what he said. I regularly put in 80-plus hour weeks, leaving the office to code from home or a bar until the wee hours of the morning, night after night, seven days a week. During my entire time in San Francisco, was I ever given a raise? No. During my time in San Francisco, was I ever given a promotion? No. What I was given was a lot more work. I not only worked hard, but efficiently, churning out a lot of code very quickly. So as soon as I finished something, I was given more, and then more, and then more. Expectations always going higher. I must have asked for a dozen raises that were denied. More equity? Denied. At the final startup I worked at before the pandemic, it reached a breaking point. I was the lead engineer building their app, but they refused to hire a product manager or business manager for the product, so I also coordinated product, customer service, design, compliance, and a lot more for the division. I was hired as a simple software engineer. Repeated requests for raises since my work required 80-plus hours a week and was easily the work of four people were rejected. Requests for more equity were also rejected. I had a deadline to make. I worked six 100-hour weeks in a row, not having time to shave, get a haircut, or do anything except churn out code to meet our launch deadline. But I was promised a raise, a month off, and more equity after we launched. And guess what? They broke their promise on all three of them. So I quit. I had a complete breakdown and burned out. In over a decade, you know what all that equity I earned turned out to be worth? Zero dollars. All that extra work didn't get me a single extra dollar. So at my last job, I tried something new. I gave higher estimates than what I could actually achieve, and I delivered ahead of time. 
I worked reasonable hours and never stressed out. And guess what? I got two raises in a year. And when they tried to put more work on my plate, I told them I was busy with other stuff. And that's what quiet quitting is. Doing what's expected and nothing more. Not breaking your back to make the equity holders rich when you own a measly slice. And somehow, in my case, it ended up with more and bigger raises than I got when I was actually breaking my back. How on earth could anyone make the argument that this guy is lazy? An inherently lazy person wouldn't be capable of working 100-hour weeks for six weeks straight. He's not foolish. He's a hardworking, wise person. He's healthier, and he's getting paid more. And that's the final piece I want to discuss to conclude this quiet quitting conversation. I think some people would hear that and think, what a fraud. And if you're a boomer, it probably sounds something like, that's just as bad as stealing. But if you're stealing something, you're taking something of value without providing something of equal value in exchange. So in the workplace, he's getting paid in exchange for the value of what he produces at work. And some might think, yeah, but he's clearly producing a lot less than what he's capable of. True. But the exchange in value isn't in how much you produce. It's in the quality of what you produce. I can create a thousand Amazon listings in an hour, but none of them will sell a dime. I could, however, create one or two Amazon listings fully optimized to my maximum capability in an hour that would sell multi-million dollars worth. The person that wrote this said it in a way like even he doesn't fully understand how things turned out the way they did, saying, somehow, in my case, it ended up in more and bigger raises than I got when I was actually breaking my back. But it makes perfect sense to me. He's a healthier human now. What he produces now is likely a lot better quality than when he was running on two hours of sleep, probably not eating well, certainly not exercising, isolated behind a computer screen all day, away from human interaction. When you're healthy, you're more productive. We all know this. That's why company leaders need to calm the fuck down about this quiet quitting stuff. Because that's what they keep citing as their concern, is losing productivity. Let me make it crystal clear to those that have that concern. First, if so many of your workers stop going above and beyond to kill themselves working for you, that's because you've proved to them you won't reward them for doing that. Sorry, that's your own damn fault. You got yourself in this mess. You've basically been getting free labor up until now. Sorry to break the news to you that you now have to pay for that, asshole. Second, the healthier relationship to work your employees have will make them healthier humans. And healthier humans are more productive than sad and tired ones. Productivity isn't about how much you produce. It's about how good what you do produce is. So pull your head out of your ass that's stuck in the Henry Ford era, okay? 
You're stuck in the second industrial revolution. We are already in the fourth. Keep up. We use our brains to produce things nowadays. And coffee. And if you're on the employee side, here's my one piece of advice for this week's episode. You likely already think this term is bullshit, but that's my advice. Don't buy into this. I'm not going to tell you to stop going the extra mile or do more than what you're asked. Because if you want to do that, go for it. I'm just saying don't let some bullshit term like quiet quitting try to convince you of how to act when it comes to work. About anything. Whether it's doing more or doing less. Instead, just let yourself learn as a normal human being, recognizing patterns and behaviors, which also can be good. They can be good things as much as they can be bad things. And adjust your response accordingly, using this thing called logic that you build on your own, not from some bullshit buzzword. That's it. That's all I got for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, I'd really appreciate if you left a rating or review. You can follow on social at Workplace Tears or get some I Cry at Work merch at WorkplaceTears.com. But that's it for this week. Thank you again for listening. I will see you next week for another episode of I Cry at Work. <laughs>